What I want is the movie Rudy. I want like everyone on their feet cheering for like the little guy and you know. If your team was made matter. up of a bunch of Rudys, you would get demolished. You would be winless on the season. Yeah, but I really like Rudy and Sean Astin in particular. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn. We are doing a throwback, like a sports throwback, like literally mm-hmm. throwing it back, Carla. <laughs> uh, we're going back to 1996 to the movie Jerry Maguire. Is it a touchback instead of a throwback? I don't think you should try to bring in sports metaphors. <laughs> that's uh, that's fair. I have no idea what a touchback is, so it just feels like a vaguely sports-related thing to say. Yeah, please, please stop. Um, <laughs> Carla, when we watched this movie, I realized that when you told me that I complete you, that was not original line. What's mm-hmm. up with that? There are so many quotable lines from this movie. What's your also, favorite? I'm pretty sure I've never said the words "you complete me" to you. Just for the record. But um, I think my favorite is probably show me the money. Well, did you know (laughs) that there's some survey or something done a while ago, a study in the early 2000s, and show me the money was the 25th most memorable line from TV and movies? Or from movies, I guess. I mean, I feel like several lines from Jerry Maguire probably had to be on that list, right? You had me at hello was number 52. Oh, there we go. That's also a very sweet line, although their relationship leaves a little bit to be desired, I think, in my opinion. But they they do end up being a pretty sweet couple. And Renee Zellweger is a standout in this movie. She does such a good job. And it was her breakthrough role. She became world famous after this. Is this what made her Bridget Jones? Uh, Probably, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, My favorite of the quotable lines is, help me help you. Help me help you yeah it's a good line it's perfect (laughs) it is uh something that applies a lot in life right you want somebody to succeed but you need their help to to get them to that point so yeah it often applies so many times in life you're trying to do something you're trying (laughs) to do the right thing and you just need somebody to get out of your own way or their own way your way each other's way help me help you Help me get out of my own way, Carla. <laughs> yeah, I do think you need a hand right now. Yeah, so there's some great quotes from this movie, a lot of memorable scenes. I do remember that the sex scene from the beginning of the movie with Jerry Maguire and Kelly Preston was scandalous at the time, which seems so quaint in hindsight as we sit here in 2022. I was going to suggest that it was 1996 and you were still like a preteen. So maybe that also was part of it. I suppose that's a factor. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, Did you know that they originally wrote the movie for Tom Hanks? That was was the original plan was for Tom Hanks, not Tom Cruise, to be Jerry Maguire. But it took so long for Cameron Crowe to put it all together that... I think everyone felt like Tom Hanks was just too old at that point. Um, They also offered the role to Woody Harrelson. And he was like, nah, I've done too many sports movies. I'm good. I can picture Woody Harrelson in this role, actually, but I really can't picture Tom Hanks. He's just too much of a good guy to play the smarmy sports agent, I think. 
can't picture it at all. So I think they made a good call with Tom Cruise, the better of the two Toms, for this role. Well, despite Cuba Gooding Jr.'s current legal sticky situations, uh, some small sexual assault stuff. You know, oh, cool. Yeah, just Good some small know. stuff. Yeah. yeah, great, great. Um, He got an Oscar for his role in this movie, and I think it was probably well-deserved. He did a good job in this movie. I did not realize that he was uh, now accused of some pretty rotten stuff. That's not good. I think he touched a woman in a bar, and then some other stuff came out. Hmm, interesting. Doesn't sound awesome. Um, well, what is your overall impression of this movie? Did you like it? Did you not? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's obviously a throwback, one that I haven't seen in a long time, but, you know, it's a sports movie. It's a rom-com. It's got all the things that, you know, take a loser like me and make me want to watch the movie. (laughs) I think it's pretty sweet. It's held up pretty well over time. There are definitely things that make it feel a little bit dated. It's definitely Uh, from 1996. Yes. So the opening scene where he's writing his manifesto on his laptop, like the laptop looks like it's a screen on top of a phone book. Yeah. It's quite thick. It's a very big laptop. I didn't know they made laptops that big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This made the fancy laptops that they used in You've Got Mail a few years later look super advanced. And I remember thinking those look ridiculous. (laughs) Oh yeah. The technology of yesteryear. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the plot of the movie in case anyone's forgotten. The basic gist of it is Tom Cruise is a sports agent and he works for a big sports firm, SMI. And at some corporate retreat, he decides to stay up all night and write some memo or a mission statement, as he calls it, where he basically says that the way that they're doing business isn't quite right. They should change some things. Those things would generally cause them to make less money. And I think it was not particularly popular with the leadership of the firm. I think he actually put the phrase, fewer clients, less money, as one of the main themes of this mission statement. Yeah. Um, And of course, he gets let go, starts up his own company, and uh, one of his colleagues joins him, and it turns into a love story with the two of them. There's one primary client that goes along with them, and we're trying to help him get his money. That's what the audience is hoping for. So anyway, it's an interesting story about a sports agent and his clients and his own personal life. Yeah, I think that about sums it up. So I think we can go ahead and dive into our very first clip where we are listening to Jerry Maguire describe kind of what he really does for a living. And we also hear him telling us where the roots of these feelings of dissatisfaction that lead him to write this mission statement are coming from. I handle the lives and dreams of 72 clients and get an average of 264 phone calls a day. It's what I do. I will not rest until I have you holding a Coke, wearing your own shoe, playing a Sega game, featuring you while singing your own song in a new commercial starring you, broadcast during the Super Bowl in a game that you are winning. And I will not sleep until that happens. It's what I do best. Give me 15 minutes to call me back. Now, I'll be honest with you. I started noticing it a few years ago and didn't say a word. In the quest for the big dollars, a lot of the little things were going wrong. Listen, there's no proof of anything except this guy is a sensational athlete. Are you Kelvin Knack? Can you sign my card? You know, I'm sorry, little fella. I can't sign this particular brand of card. Only Pro Jam Blue Dot cards. Phew. Definitely sounds like a high stress and kind of morally compromising job. I can see why he 
feels a little bit uneasy about his place in the world, as he says in the movie. When I have some sort of disgraceful scandal that causes me to get fired from my job or something, (laughs) who's going to be there to stand up and say, the only thing we have any evidence or proof for is that he's a heck of an energy engineer? Me. I'll do that. Okay. Yeah, I'll take that on for you. I appreciate you for standing up for me like that. Mm -hmm. That is such a ridiculous line for him to say, like his clients being accused of these horrible things. And he's like, all we know is he's a great athlete. I mean, what is that accomplishing, right? It's no one's listening to this random sports agent and being like, well, my mind has changed. Yeah, you're right. Let's (laughs) focus on the fact that he's a great athlete and not the fact that he might have statutorily raped some poor young girl. (laughs) Yeah, like it's just such a silly thing for him to be saying. But uh, I guess he feels like that's his role is to... He's got to be an advocate for his client, mm-hmm. I suppose. No matter how terrible of a human being they may actually be. So they have that funny clip where a kid comes and says, hey, can I get your autograph? And the guy's like, well, no, it's not the right brand. Your card is not from the company that I'm allowed to sign and endorse. And the kid walks away dejected. Is that a real thing? Can Can athletes only sign certain brands? Well, there's no like universal rule. Or anything like that. But that actually is true in some cases. Wow. People will sign contracts with different groups and that says, I will only sign your brand of card and not the other. Um, I think this actually happens fairly often. A lot of people will send sports cards through the mail to famous athletes to try to get their autograph. It's an easy way to get that done. And a common response is no. I can't sign your particular card, so they will send it back. And usually they'll send back some other autographed thing, like a picture or something like that. Gosh. I mean, if some random kid comes up to you, in a, I think they were in a hospital or an airport or something, like some random place, and just this one little kid, like, you're really going to say no to him? I don't know. Carl, it's a contract. Man. I thought as an attorney, you'd be familiar <laughs> with how important these things are. Uh, I'm also aware of how important little kids feelings are i suppose but can we stop back step back for a second and ask like why do people want autographs (laughs) like what is the point well it's a nice thing i also think in this day and age this was not a thing in 1996 but today i think most celebrities are really tired of and frustrated by the constant requests that they get for selfies right Somebody meets them and they're like, hey, can I get a selfie? And number one, the celebrity doesn't know if they're going to like turn around and sell it on the internet, right? Number two, they don't know if they're going to like tag them. And now everybody knows where they are on planet Earth. So I understand the reluctance to give a selfie. And I've, I've heard a lot of celebrities say, can't you ask me for an autograph? I would really prefer that. And then you have this nice thing proving to people that you met them. Maybe I was going to say, is that the whole point? Is it to be able to say, I'm not just making up the fact that I met Dan Marino. I have his name on a napkin. (laughs) I mean, is that that the whole goal? I think so. And it's just, it's like a tiny little piece of them, right? You feel like you have something to remember the encounter by. It's, it could potentially be worth a little money someday. And it's just a piece of memorabilia, right? People like to take tokens with them. I certainly believe that Famous people don't want to be in selfies all the time, and they would much prefer you to treat them like a human and say something nice to them. And then that may trigger them to engage with you if they're in a moment where that's reasonable. 
And often they may offer to take a picture with you rather than you coming up and be like, yeah, I'd like to take a selfie or walk by with your camera awkwardly <laughs> out and uh, put them in the background. Yeah, let's all agree that that's not a nice thing to do. We should not do that to celebrities. Well, so the the crux of this segment we're talking about here wasn't the signature on the baseball card, although I still, it's going to take me a long time to understand why autographs are cool. Um, so let's just jump to sports agents, which is what Tom Cruise is. Mm-hmm. Is he... Is he banking? He almost certainly is. So based on my research of what it means to be a sports agent, I think it's not super accurately portrayed in the film because I think most people would specialize in a particular area of sports. Oh yeah, sports. (laughs) So what I found is that you can typically expect to make as a sports agent who works with the NFL, anywhere from $375,000 a year up to $20 million a year. On top of that, you can earn commissions that range anywhere from like ten dollars or $11,000 up to like $600,000. What are the commissions for? Um, it varies. It can be based on endorsements that they've made or the actual salary contracts that they sign with a team. I think there's multiple opportunities for these kinds of commissions. I guess I would have figured that the your salary was always kind of a commission. I'm talking about if you work for like a sports agency that would pay you a salary based on like all of the grouping of all these gotcha. commissions. Yeah. So that is a very, very large salary. Obviously, if you are on the higher end of that, making close to $20 million a year, you are in a fabulous position in life. Now we see Jerry Maguire representing really, really high-end athletes in all kinds of different arenas, right? I think they show like a baseball player and a golfer and a gymnast, and he obviously represents people in the NFL. In addition to that, I don't have the sense that that's super realistic, but I don't have a lot of experience in the sports agency world. This is what I'm seeing based on my own internet research. So, But Carla, it seems like most sports agents are lawyers. Did, did you not take a sports agency year while you were in law school? Well, obviously I did because I'm really passionate about sports. Um, no, I did not. And as evidenced by my touchback comment, which may or may not be a thing, I don't know. Um, I am not very <laughs> knowledgeable about sports. So no, I definitely did not take any kind of sports law related classes in law school. But... There are such classes. That is a thing that exists. You can also get an undergraduate degree in like sports management, which is pretty common, I think. But a lot of sports agents are attorneys, which I think makes some level of sense because you are negotiating and there is some negotiating in the practice of law. But I will say that the vast majority of Well, for me personally, I didn't take any kind of negotiations class in law school. So the only experience I had with negotiating was in the real world, handling mediations for lawsuits. So I would not have been very experienced in that area until I'd been practicing law for a pretty long time. So it wouldn't have been a good fit for me to be a sports... Well, it just never would have been a good fit for me to be a sports (laughs) agent. Let's not pretend otherwise. Yeah, But that whole thing about negotiations... I. It's something that a lot of people don't learn in law school. So I feel like everyone has this idea of like, oh, you're a lawyer. Didn't you learn how to be a super good negotiator? And in many cases, the answer for people is no, especially depending on what kind of law 
you practice once you get out of law school. So it makes some level of sense to me. And obviously you're dealing with contracts too, and you get some sort of basic understanding of how contracts work and what's needed to have a valid contract in law school. But I also suspect that most big sports agencies, they probably have lawyers who are working as lawyers and not as sports agents who are carefully reviewing these documents. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Before I talk about the lawyers, I I think I want to play a game at some point, probably not in this episode, where I just, I take the word back and I put random words in front of it, <laughs> like full back or quarterback or kickback, Sacagawea dollar back, <laughs> nickelback. Uh-huh. I mean, there's all kinds of money backs. It's uh, it's yeah, there's a lot. Okay. And I want to, I want to see if you can tell if it's a real sports word or not. <laughs> it's going to be a wonderful game. Okay. All right. Um, on the lawyer front though, yeah, I think you're totally right. The agents themselves, the people who are building personal relationships with the athletes and also building relationships with the businesses or sports teams that they're working with, they're not they're not drafting contract language, right? They're not the ones who are going and putting together a standard form contract or making minor tweaks to it. I wouldn't think there's surely some expertise in the office. I do think where the legal background may come in handy is most major sports leagues have collective bargaining agreements, right? These aren't just the, the players aren't just on their own negotiating with the teams, but the teams have rules, right? They've agreed with a group of players on what is permissible and what is not. And by having knowledge about what's in the CBA, you're able to negotiate better on your client's behalf. You're able to better understand what the market for your client is and why it is that way and what they need to do to get to a higher place in said market. Yeah. And you certainly will get much better at the skill of reading a complicated document, digesting it and understanding how to kind of maneuver within the rules that are set out by any kind of document like that in law school. That is a skill you definitely will enhance by going to law school. So I get that for sure. But many sports agents are not lawyers. It's not required. My take is honestly that a lot of the reason that sports agents are lawyers is just for the the panache, right? The cachet of being able to say like, oh, I went to law school. So I can do XYZ for you more carefully, whether that's negotiate a contract or like review some complicated kind of agreement or document. And maybe that gives people like a boosted level of confidence in you. But having been to law school, my guess is that it's not going to be crazy valuable to you. So if you're thinking about becoming a sports agent, I would think very carefully about the cost of law school and what benefits you're actually going to get out of it. And maybe it's just a helpful way to get your foot in the door, but I would try to do it without it first because it's awfully expensive. Okay. Well, let's put yourself in Tom Cruise's shoes. You're working for this firm. You have this epiphany one night. You decide to write this mission statement that's all about what's wrong with your business and how it should be done differently. Should you do that? Is that a normal thing to do? Do people like ever just decide that the way that things are going at their company is not right and they should do it differently and they decide to leave. Is that real? Well, I mean, first of all, he didn't decide to leave. What he decided to do <laughs> was put this 26 page thing. He decided to help them change. Yeah. And everybody's cubby hole. I, I think probably the primary thing that he did wrong 
was he gave himself absolutely no time to like think this through and change his mind. He has this one night where he bangs out this crazy long document and puts it in everybody's box. He does not sleep at all that night, as best we can tell. So he certainly doesn't give himself a chance to sleep on this really important decision. And then we do see him have some hesitation, like at the very last minute after it's already gone out. He's like, uh, did all those actually go out to everybody yet? Or could we maybe like snatch that back? And it, it turns out being too late. So if you're going to do something like this, I would think very long and hard about it and not just do it on some crazy one o'clock in the morning whim. Do you think his model of putting some, let's call it ethics, I don't know it's really ethics, but just a different set of business values in this particular arena, do you think that could actually work out and be a successful business? I do. I think what he's talking about is the fact that this sports agency is just too focused on bringing in as many dollars as is humanly possible, which means being okay with clients doing sketchy things. It means like putting pressure on relationships that he's built in the past to squeeze every possible dollar out of it. It means that he doesn't have as close of a relationship with the athletes that he really knows and likes. I I certainly think there's that touching point where the hockey player is in the hospital with like his fourth concussion or something like that. And the the hockey player's kid just calls Jerry an asshole Um, or maybe something else. Something not so nice. Yeah. Um, That kid is part of, the kid isn't Jerry's client, but kind of is, right? Part of his job is to be an advocate for the overall well-being of that hockey player. And he's probably only being an advocate for him on the on the ice. Yeah, I think he's being an advocate for that guy's salary and not the guy as a person. And that isn't great. And I do think that people really respond to and respect the idea that somebody wants to represent them as a whole person and not just try to extract the most value out of them as an athlete. So I think you could probably build a very successful sports agency by saying to people, look, I'm not going to push you to play when you're hurt. I'm not going to push you to take endorsement deals that you don't like because I care about you and I value you and I want us to have like a holistic approach to this relationship and make sure that you're happy with every decision that we make. So you used an interesting word there, relationship. And this makes me think about the scene in the movie where Bob Sugar and Jerry Maguire go to lunch and he tells, Bob Sugar tells Jerry that he's firing him. It's like he's breaking up and ending their relationship. He takes him to lunch and fires him in a restaurant to avoid a public scene. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Very, very skeptical. I mean, that is like a classic breakup move, (laughs) but it's not a firing move, right? Like when people get fired, it's a formal process. You've got like HR people there to document it. Potentially, you've got people getting like escorted off the premises so that they don't steal company secrets or anything. But it is definitely not something that gets done at a casual lunch setting. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. If they're deciding to fire this guy, why are they letting him back in the building? 
Why do they let him steal the goldfish and go make an ass of himself in the middle of the office? Why is this not, hey, we've got a meeting at uh, 10.30 this morning, meet me in the conference room. And you walk down to the conference room and what do you know who's there? Your boss and somebody from HR and somebody from security? I don't know. This seems like a normal thing and they would escort you out and ask you to leave. Yeah. I think that's a much more realistic portrayal. I mean, maybe if you have like some super, super small business where it's just a handful of people, they would do something informal like that. But for a huge sports agency like this, where they seem to have like a hundred plus people working there, they're going to have a very formal structure with HR people. And it's not just going to be like, take somebody out to lunch and give them bad news and then let them come back to the office and use all the company resources to steal clients. Like that's, that seems highly unrealistic. Yeah. I just, I, I don't understand at all why they would do it that way. Um, you, man, yeah, firing is, is no fun. I'm sure there, I guess there are positions where sometimes they give you like a, a little bit of a parachute, right? Where they're, you're basically being told you've got a couple of months to figure it out, but you're, you're on the streets, but I can't imagine this industry is one where that would happen. Yeah. Well, this is an industry where the stealing of clients is something that is, they're going to be on high alert for, right? They want to make sure that they do everything they can to keep those clients. In fact, what seems even more unrealistic about it to me is that they would have been in touch with Jerry's clients before they let him go to let them know, like, look, this is happening. We want you to stay with us. And then there wouldn't be this scene where we see Bob Sugar and Jerry Maguire like having this race to get in touch with each other. Yeah, they have a whole bunch of agents in this firm. Why don't they get like 20 of them on the phone with Jerry's 72 clients or however many he has and say, okay, here you go. Here's your list of like three or four people that your job is to go see if we can hang on to call them. And you need to call them starting at this time. You need to, this is when we're telling Jerry that he's out and that's when you need to go talk to his clients and boom, divide and conquer, and you will surely do a particularly good job as SMI of keeping your clients. Yeah, the fact that it's just Bob Sugar versus Jerry Maguire one-on-one in this race to get all the clients just seems wildly unrealistic. They're a huge company, and they're going to do so much more. They're going to have so many more people on this to try to keep all those clients to themselves. I think another thing to talk about is these existing clients have contracts, and they are almost certainly not with Jerry Maguire. Their contracts with the firm, right? I will agree to be represented by SMI and, you know, maybe it has Jerry Maguire's name in the contract as the primary point of contact for the firm. But if he's no longer with them, you know, your contract is still valid with SMI. So this race to call these people, I kind of wonder if it needs to be a race. I'm sure it does. You want to be fast. You don't want to be changing the narrative that somebody else has already set for you. You want to be the one setting it, but... My goodness, I I can't imagine very many of the clients would have any interest in leaving. Um, it's going to be a long sell to convince them, that, hey, the next time you're up for a major contract renegotiation, you should terminate your relationship with SMI and come, come with me. I'll help you out. I've been the main person negotiating with you for years. But until you're at a point of a new negotiation or something, is there really even much of an opportunity to terminate without... Uh, surely there are big penalties and costs for these athletes for changing... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's something specific to the world of sports agency contracts that is probably pretty difficult to know unless you're in that arena. 
but it's going to be unique to the terms of each contract, right? I do think it would be important if you were in a situation like that to carefully review it and make sure that you weren't like jumping emotionally at the chance to go with Jerry Maguire or stay with SMI without knowing what the consequences were for you as an athlete. So it just, like so many things, it depends. And you've got to look at the actual terms of the contract that would apply to you in that situation. Well, speaking of emotional decisions, so Jerry, he tries to call his clients. He gets stuck on the phone with Rod Tidwell, and basically he's the only real client other than Cush, who uh, is is saying he's going to stay with him. And he decides to leave. He makes his big scene. Uh, He expects his uh, administrative assistant to come with him, and she's like, no, not going to (laughs) happen. I'm a few months away from getting a raise. Um, He grabs the, the goldfish, his only friend in the world, and uh, asks if anybody else has come with him. And Dorothy Boyd, Renee Zellweger, decides that she's going to come, um, which seemed like quite an emotional decision. And our next clip is Dorothy and Jerry in an elevator together immediately after this has happened. So I know this is a bad time, but you will have a medical program. Oh, right? sure, yes, medical. I don't know. But when you think about what you do better, don't, don't panic. I mean, we are, we're going to be great. We're going to be great. What about medical? Of course, medical. You are a single mother. You have given up the right to be frivolous. If you had read what he wrote, you would have left with him, too. And and I can always take that job in San Diego. Do you know how much those well-child exams cost? Of course I know. $150. $150, yes, that's right. And that's just when he's well. Okay, Carla. Should Dorothy Boyd have walked out with Jerry and the goldfish? Probably not. I mean, it turns out to be a good thing for her by the end of the movie, right? She's found love and she's found a new career that she seems to be excited about. But it's an awfully risky thing for her to be doing. Dude, this is stupid. What? I, I, we can't even, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, I can't, the words aren't even coming to me how, like, outraged I am at the idea that she thinks she needs to stand up right then at that very moment and walk out with him. I mean, I suppose maybe it was a moral stand that that she really felt super strongly about what he was saying and that she would refuse to go work for an employer who would fire somebody who has that kind of thought and about where the company should go. I suppose that could maybe be the case, but I don't even think her feelings were that strong. I'm sure she liked what he wrote, but I mean, come on. Like, why couldn't she, I don't know, like wait three days and talk to him, like send him an email. I think maybe it was 1996. <laughs> Call him, find him and, and say, hey, I really like what you have going on. Are you, Tell me more about this business you're starting. Mm-hmm. She should have asked a lot more questions. She didn't ask a single question, right? Well, I mean, she, we can't, well, you can't stand up in the middle of your office when he's standing there with the goldfish saying, who's coming with me? And you'd be like, well... What kind of compensation arrangement are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. Where do you think your new office will be located? <laughs> no, she obviously couldn't have realistically done it in the moment, but I think you make a great point. Like, just sit there, let him have What's his... What's the rush? Yeah, just talk to him soon. If he really is starting a company and he really does need people to help him keep that going, then talk to him like 24 hours later. Again, no one sleeps on things. All these big decisions are getting made without anyone getting a good night's sleep. And I feel like that helps a lot in terms of making good decisions. (laughs) So yeah, she probably made a pretty bad 
reckless call here, I think. Okay, so she did make this decision. What should she expect? I mean, not just about medical care, but like what what should she expect? She's an accountant, and I imagine at SMI, she's sort of treated as the support staff. When they land a big client and she doesn't get a big bonus, her job is sort of um, maybe more static than Jerry's, right? She, she is a, a key part of making their business successful, but at the same time, um, she's not the secret sauce that Jerry is, and her compensation is probably markedly different than his was. Yeah, I mean, certainly those numbers that we were throwing out for working as an NFL agent, she's not making anything close to that as an accountant, kind of in the back office behind the scenes. So should she expect to be treated like a founder for walking out and joining him on day one? Or should she expect to be treated the same way that she was at SMI? Another great question that she could have asked him if she'd gotten a good night's sleep. Um, Yeah, who knows what she should expect. It depends on what his thought process is, because right now the company is literally just him. Which is why I think it's such a ridiculous question for her to ask in that elevator at that point, because one, at that point, she doesn't know how many clients he has to his name. Two, at that point, she does know that this is like brand spanking (laughs) new, and he hasn't had time to think through anything. She has no idea what his financial situation is personally, whether he's got some capital saved up that he can put into hiring an employee like her. She just, she knows nothing and he probably knows nothing. So to just like spring that on him all of a sudden, she, she's not going to get any kind of a valid answer. Yeah, so I, I'm glad she's asking questions, but it feels like the wrong time and place to be asking those kinds of like important questions that need a sit down, thoughtful setting to to get a straight answer. I I think if you jump at this job immediately before it's even a real job, you have to expect to be undercompensated relative to what the market has to offer because you know your business that you're joining doesn't have that much to offer. And so in order to make that attractive to you, they have to provide you something extra, some kind of upside in the event that they do become a very successful, profitable business. So I would expect if I were her to be more like a you know employee number two in, in a burgeoning business that that maybe you have a, a share of ownership in exchange for substantially reduced compensation and I'd be really pissed if that didn't work out. Yeah, I think she has a right to expect something along those lines. So hopefully she knows enough to ask for that. Well, her sister Laurel in the clip asks her um, or says to her, you, "You can't be frivolous. You, you're a single mom." Do you think that should have factored into her decision-making or, you know, into day-to-day job choices for people who are in that, in that situation? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I do think that when you've got a little person who can't fend for themselves, who's completely reliant on you, you've got to factor that into your life decisions, right? So she didn't seem to be thinking about sweet little Ray when she made this impulsive decision to go put in her lot with Tom Cruise. Did you know the human head weighs eight pounds? I guess that's one of the other quotable lines from the movie. That, well, I did know that because I've seen <laughs> Jerry Maguire. Um, so I actually do think she probably had more of a safety net, at least for her son, than she realized. I say that from the 2022 perspective. I don't know if this was the case in 1996 when the movie came out. But today, 
there is a pretty big safety net in place, especially for kids when it comes to healthcare. So if she had no income coming in the door, she almost certainly could have qualified for Medicaid, especially for kids. Medicaid for kids is a much more robust and expansive program than it is for adults. So she very likely could have gotten Ray any medical care that he needed for very close to free. Now, California is actually one of a very small handful of states that can charge people a little bit of money for kids to participate in a Medicaid program. But even then, it depends on your circumstances. And we're talking about a very, very small fee. According to one site that I saw, it can be somewhere in the range of like $13 a month. So she probably had a much better shot than she thought of getting raised healthcare needs completely taken care of. So while I agree that being a single parent means you have to be pretty conservative and realistic about a safety net and make sure you can take care of your child, her safety net is her general marketability. It sounded like she had a viable job offer already in San Diego. I realize that might be hard with her, um, her sister living in the LA area and having a family resource is also very, very helpful for things. But she's an accountant, right? It's mm-hmm. not as though she has no skill set. It's not as though she's an unskilled laborer or something and just hoping to land another job somewhere else. If things don't work out with Jerry within the next couple of weeks, it, I would imagine that her past experience at SMI would make her a valuable asset to a lot of different businesses. Yeah, I would think so too. H- highly transferable skills. Yeah, being an accountant is a valuable commodity. So I think, especially in 1996, she would have been more than okay. Um, Does that mean it was a good idea for her to just walk out? Oh, no, it was dumb. No, definitely not. But yeah, she probably had a lot of marketability that she could capitalize on when she needed to. Yeah, I think think what Laurel should have done is said, hey, this is is a bit of a gamble and this may not work out and you should be prepared for this not to work out. You have a lot to offer in the business world. Don't forget that. And don't feel obligated to stick around here with this loser that you're following after that just got fired, right? Go do your, you take care of you. Mm -hmm. Could have done that with a much different message. Yeah, I agree. Also, this clip makes me think of just how important it is for anybody who's walking away from a job voluntarily or involuntarily to have their own safety net that they've put in place, right? It's always such a good idea to have some savings now, maybe for Dorothy, Renee Zellweger's character, that was a lot harder. She's living in LA, which is an expensive city. She's got a young dependent. Maybe it was a lot harder for her to build up some savings. But we also learn in the movie that Jerry Maguire basically has nothing to his name. And that to me just seems unforgivable. This guy was likely earning an astronomical salary and for him to have just frittered it all away completely on a high fly-in lifestyle was not a good move, especially if he's been having these kinds of thoughts about not feeling really satisfied with his career and the trajectory for any length of time at all. He should have been ratcheting back that spending and giving himself a savings cushion that he could maybe use to go out on his own and build a, a business that he felt good about with that capital, right? So the whole movie of Jerry Maguire centers around his job as a sports agent. And our next clip actually deals with some real sports agent stuff. 
a player wanting a new contract and being dissatisfied because he doesn't have it, and the agent trying to tell him what's going on. Friends can tell each other anything if we have our friends' hats on, right? Yeah, I think so. All right. I'll tell you why you don't have your $10 million yet. Right now, you are a paycheck player. You play with your head, not your heart. In your personal life, heart. But when you get on the field, it's all about what you didn't get, who's to blame, who underthrew the pass, who's got the contract you don't, who's not giving you your love. And you know what? That is not what inspires people. That is not what inspires people. Just shut up. Play the game. Play it from your heart. And you know what? I will show you the quan. And that's the truth, man. That's the truth. Can you handle it? It's just a question between friends. Can you handle the truth? I mean, we can't let this go by and not comment on the few good men quote, right? When Tom Cruise is saying, that's the truth, can you handle it? It makes you think of a few good men. Yeah. Well, Where's I mean, they, Jack Nicholson? They, they inverted it. Nicholson. It's totally different. This is a different line. <laughs> like, who would have thought it's the same thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is some funny writing, though. Yeah. So what do you think of Tom Cruise's advice to Cuba Gooding Jr. here? Is he right? Um, in a word... No. Okay. I don't get it, right? While it sounds really lovely, this talk about inspiring people, we're talking about the world of professional sports. It's a pretty cutthroat business and it is all about production. There are so many things that people do in the world where it is very difficult to measure whether or not you're being successful. In most professional sports, there's a whole industry geared around advanced statistics or even just basic statistics that can identify whether or not you are successful relative to your peers. It is way easier than other things. And what sports franchises are trying to do is that they don't want to allow a talented player to go play for somebody else. They want to pay them the least they possibly can and build a team that you know is comprehensive in all the different facets and is able to be successful And they're going to do that with their own risk tolerance profile. If they don't think you have the ability to produce and put the numbers out there on the field, it doesn't matter how good of heart you have at all, how much you play with heart, they're not going to buy in. We saw the general manager of this football team say that the reason he doesn't want to give Rod a contract is because he's a shrimp. He's like 5'10 or something like that, which seems tall to me, by the way. Um, (laughs) He's like 5'10 and he wants a prototypical 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", number one wide receiver. He wants a big guy who can race down the field and get open and and get up high and get any balls that are thrown their direction. He doesn't want some smaller guy who's struggling to get open, who may be injury prone and not be able to stand up year after year to the abuse that you take as a wide receiver in the NFL. It, It is a completely reasonable position that he's taken. And so in order for Rod to get his money, what he has to do is demonstrate on the field that he actually has the skill set that's worth it. He needs to consistently go out and play and be a difference maker on the field. Maybe he's a system player and the GM thinks he's just replaceable. He's a cog in the machine. And while he may be the best receiver we have right now, we could get rid of him and plug in almost anybody else who's decent and they'll do the same thing for, for a little pay. There may be a variety of reasons, but I guarantee you it's not because he plays with his head and not his heart. It, it, it didn't seem like the way that he was playing was trying to avoid injury or something like that. It, it seems like uh, what Jerry is trying to say is that you're just such a passionate person who cares about the people in your life. But when it comes to being on the field, you seem to not want to take responsibility for success as a team. And 
while that is important as a team sport player, is really about production. Man, Robert, that just bums me out so hard. <laughs> it's such a depressing perspective. Why? It's on it. They're it paying just, for performance. I, I what I want is the movie Rudy. I want like everyone on their feet cheering for like the little guy and, you know. If your team was made matter. up of a bunch of Rudys, you would get demolished. You would be winless on the season. Yeah, but I really like Rudy and Sean Astin in particular. <laughs> I'm just saying. I think it's a bummer that Sports isn't more about like heart and rooting for people to do amazing things that maybe they don't look on the surface like they could do. I mean, sport- that's what I like. That's what I like about like the Olympics. Well, so sports is filled with all kinds of wonderful moments like that. It just isn't at the highest competitive levels, right? Like think about all those feel good stories you see where there's some kid who is like the the high school basketball teams equipment manager or something like that and they've got some sort of disability that makes it to where they can't really play the game but maybe they have some phenomenal skill like they're a great three-point shooter but they lack the athleticism to play any defense whatsoever or to, to really get out there on the floor without turning the ball over regularly occasionally you see those videos on espn of of that kid getting into a game and hitting a, a three-pointer before time expires and it's just like heartwarming and everybody loves it and you can have your goofy Rudy moment but it's not about competitive sports it's about specifically making people feel included giving them a chance to accomplish their own dreams and that's that's lovely and wonderful but that's not what the NFL is all about yeah I get that I guess I just I don't like it (laughs) I can't put it any other way it's just not heartwarming and I want things that are heartwarming that's that's what I got let's let's take Roger Federer right he just retired recently but 10 years ago fantastic elite tennis player should we have wanted him to just allow somebody who's worse than him to score points on him and beat him at Wimbledon or something I don't what do you want no and I get that and I think Malcolm Gladwell put out some kind of piece about why we shouldn't root for the underdogs because like we should be rooting for the people who like work the hardest and have the most talent and why would we want somebody who's not actually that good to just get lucky on some random day and beat the person who's better well I understand that perspective but I'm just saying it's kind of a bummer to think about this thing that people get so excited about and invested in just really being about like cold, hard statistics and who can deliver and who can't. And that's like all there is to it. There is no heart. It just doesn't matter. Well, I mean, the the heart matters some, right? You definitely have to put in the time and the effort and being a professional athlete is difficult. It takes a lot of personal investment. Um, there are all kinds of other jobs in the world, though, where you can sort of choose your level investment, uh, level of investment, right? There's this whole quiet quitting phenomenon that's going on these days. I think, I think this clip made you think about that a little bit, right? It definitely did, and I do think that's kind of. I mean, quiet quitting was obviously not a phenomenon in '96, but that seems to be what Tom Cruise is kind of implying to Cuba Gooding Jr. is. You're just kind of putting in the bare minimum amount of effort and you're not really going above and beyond and like really striving to do better. So that sounds a lot like quiet quitting to me. You and I have kind of debated this a little bit in the past and whether quiet quitting is a good thing or a bad thing 
or just a neutral thing. I found some interesting statistics on quiet quitting. So there was a Gallup poll done, which found that half of U.S. workers are what they would call quiet quitting. (laughs) Yeah, which means that they are, quote, not engaged, just doing the minimum and feel psychologically detached from their job. And it's actually worse for younger people. They are feeling even more disengaged. So I I mean, that certainly doesn't sound like a good thing on the surface that all these people are feeling disengaged from their work. But I think a lot of folks feel like it actually is a pretty solid phenomenon that may actually be good for employees because it basically just means that people are not having to do more than what they're being paid to do. But there are a lot of salaried jobs out there. What is What are you being paid to do when you're being paid a salary? Well, obviously it varies from job to job. And I think where your problem comes in, and I do agree with this, is that it should not be the case for most people that like nothing gets done unless someone specifically asks them to do it and to specifically ask them to do it in like a particular way. I think what your perspective is, and I'm... I'll let you speak for yourself in a second here. No, no, tell me how I feel. <laughs> is that people should be just like sort of looking around and figuring out what does need to get done, right? In fact, you and I have had this conversation about sharing the workload when it comes to household chores. So I think it's very common, especially, I'm, I realize I'm stereotyping here, but it is very common for men, more so than women, to just be like, well, why didn't you just... Why don't you just tell me what I need to do around the house <laughs> instead of just like, oh, I see a pile of dirty dishes in the sink. Let me go ahead and take care of those. I don't know if those need or, to be dealt with. Oh, there's like dog hair all over the couch. Let me grab the vacuum and and I, get that up. I thought that was okay. Uh huh. Instead of like, well, you didn't ask me to do it. So why would I just do it on my own? And that is a very frustrating attitude to have because it's like, are your eyes, do we need to get you a better glasses prescription? Like what? Why didn't you see the dog hair all over the couch? <laughs> I saw it. Did you really not see it? So I, I think that's probably the same kind of thing that you think is going on in the workplace is that people are just like kind of willfully ignoring things unless they are specifically asked to do them. Did I get it right? I don't know. You kind of rambled. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What I would say is that when I think about this quiet quitting thing, I I think it's people just not doing their best at something. Like I fully believe that you should have a healthy work-life balance and you should be able to choose a job that pays you a reasonable wage uh, and that that you find a balance that works for you, whether that's the amount of travel your job requires, whether it's the amount of hours that you're working, whether it's how far away that job is from where you live, whatever. I I certainly want people to be able to find that. But I don't think that that should mean doing anything less than giving your best and putting your all into whatever you're doing, right? You should care about the results for what you do. You should care about your teammates and the other people that you're working with. Um, And not just for the well-being of your business, but what about for yourself? How miserable is it? If you hate what you're doing so much every day, that you aren't willing to put in a little bit of effort to make it better, right? Where's Where do you get your sense of pride from, from that? Like, isn't it going to be demoralizing? It might feel good for a couple of months, but at some point, 
isn't it just going to feel really sickening that you're putting in all this time for, I don't know, for, for what? Like, what are you trying to do? Well, I think the response to that would be, well, I'm doing it for the pay. This is not, you know, it's sort of the backlash to the idea that the workplace is a family. And I think a lot of people don't, I get that. don't like that idea, right? It's a professional setting. We should treat each other like professionals. I am exchanging my services to you in exchange for pay. And that's why I'm here. I am here for the money. But if you're quiet quitting, aren't you kind of under delivering your services? Aren't you sort of not raising up to, to leadership that, hey, you've only given me 30 hours worth of work to do. And I know your expectation was to give me 40. Thank you for not micromanaging me. Um, I can do a little bit more to help out. By not doing that, you aren't fulfilling your end of the obligation. Well, I don't know that that's the definition of quiet quitting is telling like secretly doing less than 40 hours a week and hiding it from people. But perhaps for some people it is. I think it varies from person to person, right? This is not like a universal definition. But I think it's generally if if all we mean by quiet quitting is you're doing the work that's actually in your job description, then it's it's like stupid that it's even a term, right? That should be what most people do at their job is what's in their job description. But whose job description isn't to just help the company be at its best? Like other duties as required is is kind of a common thing in just about every job description, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, it's so hard to speak generally about this because each job is going to be unique. I I think if you're going to quit loud quit, like just freaking quit. I, I fully endorse that, right? Go find something that makes you happy. I just, I don't think this, this quiet quitting trend is going to lead to satisfaction. I think it's going to lead to dissatisfaction in a way that is surprising to people. You might be right. I think it's going to be different for each person. Like I keep saying, maybe some people are thriving and happy doing what is like specifically asked of them and their managers are super happy with that and like everyone's great but then are they quite quitting i don't know (laughs) sounds like they're they're just working it's such a vague term you don't i mean certainly doing there are many people who are trying to climb the corporate ladder at their job right they're trying to do great jobs and uh and have be recognized be given the opportunity to do more and have additional responsibility and hopefully additional pay to go along with that and choosing not to do that isn't quite quitting I mean, it's just doing your job. That's fine. Maybe I don't understand what quiet quitting is. Well, I don't think anybody really does. It's sort of a blanket <laughs> term that's been used ad nauseum within the last six months or year or so. And it does get batted around in a lot of different contexts to describe a lot of different scenarios. So it's a very vague term. However, I do think it is really important for people who are in a managerial role to be aware of the fact that this is so prevalent, this applies to you. You are in a managerial role, right? So what I think is helpful to prevent this kind of mindset from employees is to just talk to them and treat them like actual human beings, right? Wait, 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 what? (laughs) I think that's what's missing in a lot of work environments where people feel the need to do whatever quiet quitting means to them. But Carla, employees are cogs in the machine. That's mm-hmm. what they were manufactured for. Yeah, Robert's a great manager. That's that's clear. 
I mean, really, it is so important to talk to people, right? Understand what's going on in their lives, understand how they're feeling about the position that they're in, encourage them to be honest with you. And if you have to ask somebody to do something that is kind of going above and beyond, like work a weekend or, you know, really just put in a ton of extra effort and creativity on a project, I think it's important to help people understand why that's necessary. I think oftentimes managers or people in any kind of position of power can have this mentality of like, just get it done. I'm asking you to do it. That is the reason that you need to do it. And it helps people so much to really understand the bigger picture and feel motivated to do a great job with something because they know that the end result is going to have this fantastic result for the client, right? Like it really matters to whoever it is you're doing this for. Oh yeah. If I'm working somewhere where the answer is because I said so, yeah, that's, that's leading to some loud quitting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I fully agree. But I mean, I think I've been in scenarios like that where people are like, it just, it needs to be done by Monday and you don't need to bother with knowing why it just needs to be done by Monday. And they're telling you this on like a Friday afternoon. (laughs) So it, uh, that's, that's a really frustrating position to be in. And if you understand the bigger picture, like, hey, this emergency thing just came in the door. We're really sorry. But look, if we don't get this done by Monday, the client blows their deadline and they're not going to have a chance to respond to this complaint that just got filed against them. Right. Like if you're going to a young associate in a firm, which would have been my former life scenario, and you're not explaining things like that to them, then you're going to end up with kind of dissatisfied associates who feel like you're just demanding things of me just to do busy work or like just because you feel like you can boss me around. Well, to sum this whole quiet quitting thing up, if I haven't, I think what I heard you say, if we take this through the Jerry Maguire lens, if I have someone that I I know that's working with me that is not putting in the right effort, who's quiet quitting, I need to take them to lunch and fire them there so that it doesn't cause a scene. Yeah. That's accurate. Uh, okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm glad I got the life lessons from Jerry <laughs> Maguire correct. You had also, me at hello, Carla. Next time you see like a pile of dog hair, just, just you know, just vacuum it up. Help me help you. <laughs> Tell me what to do. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, I think that about sums it up for Jerry Maguire. And Robert and I are going to go have a chat about household chores. So... We hope everybody else has a lovely week ahead of them and doesn't uh, doesn't quite quit, but finds a job that they feel like they don't have to quite quit. Show me the money. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Take care.